What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Rockcast, powered by Onyx Hump Mapping. And today we are joined by Bill Vander Hayden from Ironwell Broadheads, and we're going to talk all kinds of, of archery things. So thanks for hopping on, Bill. Yeah, Jordan, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, what's new from, from Ironwell, and, uh, or what could be coming new that you can talk about? Yeah, we've been busy lately. We uh, we launched a couple of new broadheads this year. Our, our single bevel series, which is um, it's very similar to our S series solid blade that we've had in the past, but just with a single bevel grind on that main blade and the bleeder blade, um, which is optional. And that's been really popular. We had a we launched a pre-order and sold way more than we planned to, so we'd actually had that shut off for a while. But we're just restocking and going to start selling those again soon. So that's been a lot more popular than I expected. Um, and that's, that's an interesting, um, I've been testing those a lot the last year yeah. and a half or so, and you get some rotation through the animal and opens up holes. So that's, that's been kind of, uh, exciting. I like it better than that. I actually expected I would. Um, so that's been, that's a new product for us. Also our, our wide series, we've gone to a wide solid blade on our 150 grain on up so we had a lot of requests for that in the last year too so those are two of our kind of our two main broadhead offerings that are different and then the other thing we're doing is um we call it our snyder core system so i've been working with aaron snyder on trying to um develop a better broadhead component system for micro diameter arrows so those are the 165 166 id arrows and we got there is it's a it's a broadhead that has a really long um, shank to it. It's an inch long before you get into the threads to um, really add a lot more strength and support in that micro diameter size. Um, but we use that with a with our impact collar over it, and then um, we have hit inserts from 15 up to 100 grains that can attach behind it, and you can use it as a totally glue-in system, or you can use it as a as a hit insert system where you push the hit insert down in there and, and bond it in. Okay. Awesome. Um, on that single, I know that you did quite a bit of testing with the, the single and the double. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah. So I've, I've always, um, I've always liked the double bevel better for, and there are some advantages to it. Um, I tested a lot of broadheads, you know, many years ago when I, before really getting into designing my own and I didn't see that great of a benefit to the single bevel over the double bevel in terms of penetration and the double bevel. So a double bevel, you know, you're grinding both sides back and forth. Um, and that edge is since it's kind of straight and not all, all ground on one side, it's, a, it's inherently a little more durable. You can achieve a little bit better sharpness durability with that combination and and that's why i've i've for years just said no nah, just use a double bevel it's better it's a little stronger a little sharper um you don't need a single bevel but uh you know customers have been just pushing for years on it so it's pushed me to go back and do more testing and and really try and decide um so you know i prototyped it and tested it more so really to show that hey double bevel's better 
But what I found that was interesting is that um, there's some kind of cool features to a single bevel and it's really this rotation. Um, the negative with having that single bevel is you get all this pressure on one side of the blade and they're more likely to want to roll that edge or, or break out little pieces of that edge, cause some kind of edge chatter. And so you need to have, you know, strong, tough steel, which we do in our A2 tool steel, but we also have to have the right angle. And initially I started with a little too thin and kept increasing that. Um, a lot of people use 25 degrees one sided. Um, and I, I went up to 32 before I really felt like the strength was good enough, you know, to give our lifetime warranty and, and make sure it wouldn't break going through bones um, or bend. And um, so, you know, it kind of got the edge strength I think we needed. And then in the testing, you know, when it, when it hits and all that pressure is on, when it's going through hide, meat, bone, all that pressure being on one side is pushing that blade to the side and then the bevel on the, you know, the other side of the blade is in the other, on the other direction. So you get this rotational effect and it's been, it's been actually putting square holes um, through the hide on entrance and exit really? with our, with our bleeder, single bubble bleeder. So you get this, you know, cross cut, but it's also rotating um, as it's entering. And it's, yeah, I can show you some photos, but it's actually, it looks like a square cut when you're done. Man. So it, it's opening up holes well and, um, and putting a lot of blood on the ground and, and, you know, rotating through there as well. You're just, you're getting a little more cut because of that rotational effect. You're cutting a bit more tissue. So it's, what I like about it is it still can be a compact, relatively compact design. You know, our inch and a 16th wide main blade, three quarter inch wide bleeder, 1.8 inch total cut, just like our S series. But now you're getting little more tissue cut and opening up holes a bit, but still getting, you know, excellent long range flight because it's not an overly large um, broad hip. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I know you went to Alaska on a caribou hunt and then you did some other hunts. I think elk was in there. Um, did, is that the broadhead that you used? It, it wasn't yet. <laughs> you know, I, uh, <laughs> I, those are big hunts for me, you know, my first time caribou hunting in Alaska. And then I, and then I, um, came on to shoot big bulls in Colorado and Wyoming. And really our S series, our S125 is the one I, I have total confidence in for, you know, the best penetration on big animals like that. And so I went with the one I was more comfortable with. Um, I did shoot, you know, a number of hogs and, and some deer with the single bevel uh, this year, but this is more of a, of a test fall for me on the single bevel. And I wasn't quite ready to put it on my most important hunts. It's, you know, being, being successful in bow hunting is still more important to me than, you know, the business. <laughs> so, right. so I, I use what I, I know is going to work, work well for me there. Nice. But, you know, after the, after the year of using it on, on pigs and deer, um, I'm, I'm totally confident. And I think I probably will use it for, I'm going to repeat that caribou hunt, um, this year. And I probably will use it on that hunt to give it a try. That's awesome. Where was that, um, up in Alaska? Yeah, it was, it was um, out of Kotzebue, so we flew north out of there up into the Brooks Range, kind of the south edge of the Brooks Range. Nice. We were hunting the Northwest Arctic herd up there. That's awesome. I'm going to be in the Brooks in August after sheep. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Any uh, any travel tips as far as like packing or, or getting, I think more so getting like meat back or, or animals back. I've talked about 
maybe just ordering a cooler and shipping it straight up there and then just being able to load it up with meat and uh, check it on the plane with me on the way home. Any tips there? Yeah, the tip I would have is is to fly uh, Alaska Airlines and then they'll let you fly back with, you know, frozen meat boxes in an out in an antler box. And I guess you wouldn't have necessarily a big antler box like we do with the caribou, mm -hmm. but um, there, yeah. So the, the flight service person I used to fly in on a cub plane, you know, from Kotzebue up into the brooks, um, they had these, you know, freezer boxes for meat that we, you know, could debone our caribou. And then we stayed in a, one hotel in, in town that had a, a walk-in freezer. So we froze our, our meat um, and I kept the whole hide on mine. And we, so we froze it in these meat boxes and then just checked them on the plane and came back with them. Mm -hmm. um, and then we even had a layover in, in Seattle and they, they moved them into a, a big walk-in freezer there at the airport as well um, with Alaska Airlines. So they kept it froze the whole way back. And then, Know, we got all back with us for you know i think it's 100 bucks for an antler box um you know you can put a couple sets of antlers in there and it's i think it was a hundred dollars for these meat boxes also that are i think they can maybe go to 100 pounds i can't remember the weight the max weight but um anyway that worked out pretty good i know some people just um have you know, there's a local company that can ship your meat to a processor and then get it back that way. But I think it's fairly costly and it takes takes more time. I don't really have the details on that, though. Yeah, that's pretty much what they were going to do. I know that that's what I'm going to do with the the hide, at least. I think it's going to go to, a, I don't know if it's going to completely get tanned before it gets shipped down here or not. But um, I need to look at all those details, too. But that's what it sounded like for the meat was, is like, and as crazy as it is to me, there's a lot of people that go up there on those hunts. And then, I mean, I, I understand donating meat, but there's a bunch of people that just shoot a sheep and go home with the horns and they just leave the whole sheep for the outfitter or whatever. But uh, I would like to take mine back or bring it back. Yeah, I always like to to have the meat of the animal, especially when it's something a little different like that to, yeah. to try it out um, for sure. And and I did donate a fair amount of meat last year getting caribou and then two big elk, but I've got, um, I've got a lot of friends that didn't fill their tags last year and they were really happy to get some. some elk oh yeah. Sure. Heck yeah. Spread the, spread the wealth. Um, so you recently did a seminar called, uh, the science of hunting arrow flight and penetration. And I thought that we would talk a bit about that today. Um, sounded like people responded to it really well. And it's just things like, you know, momentum versus kinetic energy, um, aero stability, diving into FOC a little bit, and then veins. And I think just, you know, overall what people need to think about when they're choosing an aero setup, especially for some of these bigger animals like elk. Yeah, definitely. What, what I found is that a lot of the knowledge out there is more for, for target aero setups. You know, a lot of the a lot of scientific research, a lot of the articles, um, things out there are really focused on target archery. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the pro shops, a lot of the arrow companies um, push that as well. And so I, I've kind of found that there's a bit of a lack of understanding of the, the physics involved in a, in a hunting arrow setup. And what I mean by that is, you know, a broadhead on the front. And 
and really for you know the seminar idea was um it was at an elk shape and i was really trying to help people um with their elk arrow setups and give some of the science to kind of explain why so they'd understand why i was pushing them in a certain direction and i think there is it was received really well. In fact, when the summer I was over, I was there for another hour and a half, I think, answering questions on arrow setups. Um, so I think it seemed to be new information to a lot of people. And yeah, I think it'd be it'd be good to, to share it. But I think the, you know, with the, with the hunting arrow setup and for elk especially, I think a fixed blade broadhead is what you want. It just has much lower force to penetrate. Um, and with that, with the fixed broadhead on the front, you know, the arrow flight's gonna be different. You have to have some different, you know, considerations there. And I think, um, you know, just to relate it back, I just started with kind of the general science there of, of energy um, and what's happening. You've got this work being done at the bow and work is force times distance. You've probably seen the the draw force curve where you hit some peak as you're drawing back and then there's some let off where it goes down, but mm -hmm. you get the force distance curve. And and the area under that curve is the energy that your bow is putting, you know, into the arrow. And so then your arrow will have this kinetic energy when it leaves. And there's a lot of people out there saying kinetic energy doesn't matter in bow hunting, that's just for rifle or whatever. But, um, and they say momentum is a better thing to look at. Well. For, for one, momentum is just mass in motion, mass times velocity, and kinetic energy is really the ability of that mass in motion to do work. And, you know, momentum is mass times velocity, kinetic energy is one half mv squared. So they're, they're related, but energy, um, so there's, you know, it's legitimate to use either momentum to figure out kind of penetration or, or an energy balance. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the energy is a little bit simpler in some ways. You know, you think about this work being done by the bow, puts kinetic energy into the arrow, and it's, so it's one half mv squared. So what you wanna have is the most retained energy or retained momentum um, when you impact the animal downrange. So I say in general, choose mass over velocity because your mass isn't gonna change as you go downrange, but your velocity will. Um, you'll have drag that's proportional to velocity squared. So a light, fast arrow is going to slow down more because you have more drag force and then you have a lighter mass. So it's going to decelerate much, much more. Um, so in general, choose mass over velocity. And people will say, how heavy? And I'll generally say just, you know, as heavy as you can and keep the trajectory that you want there. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that's that's about a 500 grain arrow typically. Um, it kind of depends on my bow setup. I was shooting 530 last year with a 75 pound bow. Um, <clears throat> my my 70 pound bow, it's been around 500 or 515. So you know you don't, you don't need to go 650 like a lot of people are pushing out there. But and there's not really a threshold where at some mass, all of a sudden you're breaking bones where you weren't prior or going way further through an animal than you were prior. It's kind of a continuous improvement there. Um, but then also what what I think a lot of people miss on this is that, okay, you've got, you're trying to get the most retained momentum or most retained energy at impact, 
But now that, that energy gets converted to work on the arrow, which is force times distance again. So in really distance through the animals, what you're trying to maximize here. So in order to get the max distance, if you can reduce that force to penetrate, it's gonna increase the distance you penetrate one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. So if you're using a broadhead that takes half the force, say, to cut through that hide and meat, it will go two times as far through the animal. And that's what uh, a lot of people miss here is that, okay, with a little extra mass, you can, you can gain, you know, five or 10% improvement down in, in um, penetration maybe, but um, cutting the force in half, you could double your penetration. So I think people miss out on that, um, that especially for big animals like elk, keeping that force to penetrate low is, is really important there. All right, everybody, I just want to jump in here real quick to thank our sponsor, Onyx Hunt Maps, for powering the podcast. One thing I want to touch on today about the app that I really like is a feature that I used last week on a scouting trip that probably saved me a, quite a bit of time and probably a burned morning um, or a burned evening, I guess, is the line distance tool. So if you open up your map, go to wherever you're wanting to hunt, scout, whatever, Go down to the bottom of the page, it's called map tools and it'll say line distance. And this is gonna help you get an idea of like the scale of country. So last week I marked a glassing point that I wanted to glass some basins from. And I wanted to do that in the evening while I'm facing a little bit more westerly. Just from from being there, and it was actually off of a road, driving down that road, I estimated that the basins were gonna be like you know, two to three miles from the closest to the furthest. And right before I left, I got on Onyx and thought, you know, I better check that. Hit the line distance and it was actually more like five miles to about the center of those basins. So I, having it being like a western facing glassing point, I decided, hey, I'm going to pop smoke on that. I'm going to go change up my evening routine a little bit, and then I'm going to um, hike out, and I'm going to drive up and sit on that glassing point so at first thing in the morning I can glass it when the sun was at my back just because that was so far away, um, those animals so far away. You, you need that sun at your back and good conditions to just you know make everything as good as it can be to be able to see animals from that distance. So... With that, that is the tip that I have for you today through Onyx Hunt Maps. To get your membership, head to onyxmaps.com forward slash hunt and enter code ROCKCAST at checkout for 20% off. That is 20 bucks off the um, elite membership that includes all 50 states. And yeah, go check that out and back to the episode. Interesting. Is there like an energy... Uh, figure that you could give us that you know maybe a threshold that you don't want to go below you know in that it would depend really by broadhead you know the the force i've seen just measuring you know do a push force test on this instrument machine so it's it's very accurately um measures force with the load cell as it's pushing down through so i'll get this force distance curve and what I'll see on, on iron wheel broadheads, for instance, and that's, uh, I describe that as a, you know, a two blade with bleeder, cut on contact, that's extremely sharp and then retains the edge really well. So it keeps that sharpness down through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through hide and meat, I would see like 11 pounds with that broad, with our broadhead. 
Um, and that would jump up to about 60 pounds with the three blade cut on contact type design. Yeah. And Leo's getting 80, here it is 81 pounds for a three blade chisel point. Um, and then you go to a mechanical and it was over 150 pounds and it, it was kind of smashing it all down to the table and it hadn't actually penetrated the hide yet at 150 pounds. So, you know, mechanicals are 15 times the, the energy, the force required to get through just the hide um, and into the meat. So, you know, I don't think mechanicals should be used at all in elk. I know. Yeah, I know that's insane. Have success, but it's just not, it's just too risky. Um, I think personally that you catch a little rib bone or a little bit of an angle or anything's not perfect and you can have a, a failure there or a lack to penetrate, you know, past the first lung. Um, so, you know, energy setup will really depend on broadhead. And if you're lighter energy setup, you definitely want to have a broadhead that will cut through easier, you know, um, uh, cut on contact. It's really sharp to start with for instance gotcha. Mm -hmm. gotcha okay and uh is there let's see so you're shooting 75 pounds with um i've met you before so i know you gotta kind of have a long draw length right 20, i do have a 30 inch draw length. 30 yep okay so what about a person that's not near as tall say like a 27 inch draw length and is pulling 60 pounds yeah um you know, it still holds the ma choose mass over velocity, but I, I like I like that 450 to 550 grains, and that's generally what I'm recommending to to people. Um, you know, unless and you said what 60 pounds, 27 inch draw, maybe. Yeah, I think I'm I'm shooting four. I have a 28 inch draw, shooting like six, a little over 60 pounds, probably like 63 ish, and I think I'm at I'm at 480 with my setup. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I, I like the 450 plus, even even for the lighter weight, um, you know, and and you kind of need it more if you got lighter weight. Um, and, you know, there's, there's kind of a balance there, but you will be better off in penetration with mass. And, you know, I think for, yeah, I like to see up in that 450 grain range, um, you know, 420, if you if you really want to, I have some people that, you know, they're kind of a lighter setup, but yet they want to have a long trajectory. So, you know, um, I think 420 is okay, but I really like that 450 plus. And mm -hmm. especially for the guys that are maybe shooting over 290 feet per second. And I think you're just way better off just adding some mass. Um, you know, there's hitting that animal at 290 versus 280. I mean, the time your arrow gets there is, isn't going to change very much at all. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, you know, a, bit, a little bit easier for you to um, set up. Your arrow is going to be a little more forgiving. Your bow is going to be more forgiving at a little bit slower speed as well. Um, you know, we should talk about the, you know, the arrow setup there for a fixed blade on the head. Um, okay. You know, really with arrow flight's key here because and I didn't really, I didn't mention that yet, but the, you know, with momentum, if you look at momentum, um, it's, it's a vector quantity. So it's like in that straight line, that mass times velocity will be equal to some force 
times time as you hit the animal. But that's really the momentum along that straight line. And if your arrow is coming off, you know, fishtailing around, there's a lot of wasted momentum that's not going in the right direction. Um, or in terms of energy, there's a lot of wasted energy there as well. So having good arrow flight is really key to getting good penetration. You know, if your arrow is not going straight into the animal, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, you're going to lose a ton of penetration. So arrow flight's key. And so the things there are, you know, stability, number one. Um, so stability, if you think about that, it's um, you've got the center of mass on the arrow, and that's kind of the pivot point. And if your arrow is, so it's going, say it's going in a straight line, but if it tips off of that straight line, you know, that, that wind across the arrow, will it create a force or pressure that's going to push it right back on the straight line or keep it veering off? And what you have going on when you have a broadhead in the front, you have, um, you know, you have some surface area there that that wind is going to be blowing across that's going to want to push it off course when it's tipped a little bit off off that straight line um and on the other end you have your veins that are also have air going across them at some angle now rather than straight down them and there's some pressure created there that wants to push it back online so to improve stability with a fixed head you need to have more vein than you would need with the field point and you know what i find works well and I often recommend is, you know, three veins that are um, like higher profile veins, like uh, a Max Hunter, a Blazer vein, a Fusion 2, um, I think the Bully veins are about that size. There's there's a number of veins that are, you know, about that same size. Um, I find three veins, you can, you can use four veins as well, but three veins, I think is a little more efficient in that you're not adding any more drag or mass at the back than you need to, but yet it has excellent um, stability and the ability to recover um, and pull back online quickly. Um, so, so enough vein at the back is one. Um, the FOC, um, high, having higher FOC moves that pivot point forward. So it gives your veins a little longer lower arm to steer it back on, on track. So, you know, a lot of people are touting extreme FOC for mm -hmm. penetration and man, I haven't really seen um, a big increase in penetration from FOC. I don't think the physics really support that there should be, um, you know, it's, it's mass times velocity in that straight line is going to equal some force over time pushing through the animal. So FOC isn't really in that equation. Um, if it's helping you keep that arrow flying straight, then I can see a big benefit. You know, if, and I think a lot of like Dr. Ashby's work was, was a longbow shooting at very close range, say 10 yards or so. And I could see how FOC would have a big factor on how straight that arrow is coming off a longbow at 10 yards out. Um, so anyway, FOC, FOC um, Higher is better because it will improve stability. Um, at some point, it will start to create where the arrow kind of nosedives and having a little bit lower FOC will actually, it'll have a little bit of lift and it'll have a longer trajectory um, or flatter trajectory, I would say. But um, 
it really is hard to get really high FOC without getting high mass and that's going to limit trajectory as well. So anyway, and you know, higher FOC in general is better, but I'm typically in that 13 to 15% personally, um, with a 30 inch draw and shooting 70 to 75 pound bows. I just can't get that much mass up front. You know, I'll, I'll get like 175 grain up front total maybe. Um, and that's worked great, but gotcha. so enough in the back, um, a, a good, a decent FOC. And, you know, I would say, you know, 12 to 16%, I think is, is fine. is great. Um, and their thing is enough rotation. I'm surprised how many guys out there are shooting straight veins or, or one degree. And a lot of them are like target veins at one degree. Um, and if you buy pre-fletched arrows out there, that's what you get. And the benefit of rotation, there's really two things. Um, one is it, it averages out any asymmetries. So if let's say you've got a half hour outsert system and it's say it's off five thousands or so to the side and now your broadhead is out there in front of that and it's tipped off ten thousandths to one side and if your arrow doesn't rotate let's just say the broadhead is tipped left and it comes off the bow well the pressure across that um is going to be pushing harder on one side and it's just going to drift that arrow off and you're going to hit you know left if the arrow rotates um coming off the bow and then that then that pressure you'd get from that head being tipped off to the side it that is going to it's still going to be there but it's going to rotate around and it's going to keep kind of pushing it back on center um so it's going to average it out it's going to open up your groups but it's not going to be way off to one side um similarly if the shaft is not straight and has a little bit of a you know five thousandths bow to it if it doesn't rotate it's just going to want to curve off off to the one side versus if it rotates it, it'll still open up group somewhat, but it's going to stay on the center line at least. Interesting. Super interesting. So what can a person look at to know that their FOC needs to be increased? Like if I'm shooting, you know, whatever arrow with a hundred grain uh, field tip on it and I'm shooting and it's just, I'm not shoot. Well, I guess with broadheads, let's say, and I'm shooting and it's just not, just not consistent or doesn't seem to be flying well. If I throw a 125 grain broadhead on there and move that FOC up, um, will that make a big difference? Just that 25 grains. It probably won't make the FOC shift probably won't make, um, a huge difference. I think if, if you're having a big problem shooting broadheads, um, at say 40 yards or something, there's probably an issue with, I'd probably look first at bow tuning. On um, the bow side, gotcha. I'd probably look on the bow side or or the spine. So, and these are more cr critical um, when you have a fixed head on the front, for sure. So, you know, bow tuning is basically just getting it so that the string is pushing that knock in a straight line with your rest. So as the arrow comes off the bow, it's going straight. Um, and you know, paper tuning is a, is a good kind of first step. Look at that. Is are you shooting a bullet hole through paper um, at you know 10, 12 feet, something like that? You can do some finer tuning then by shooting a, a bare shaft also through paper, and then shooting a, a bare shaft and a flat shaft at say 20 and 30 yards to see are they hitting 
um, are they hitting about the same spot or pretty close? And are the are the two shafts kind of parallel, or is that bare shaft, you know, at some angle and off, you know, six inches to the side? Because that'll tell you, that'll kind of tell you is the arrow coming straight off the bow. So, you know, and there, there's lots of um, articles and videos and things mm -hmm. out there about bow tuning, and your local shop can probably help you, but. You know, I see that a lot too. Somebody will say, well, my bow's tuned, you know, the pro shop tuned it last year when I bought the bow. Um, you, know, you know, that doesn't cut it. You need to make sure with you shooting it that it's the arrows coming straight off the bow because the way you hold hold and put pressure on your grip and everything will affect that. Also, string stretches over time, limbs can relax a bit over time and you know, that can change. So you, you need to recheck it. But Gotcha. You know, I definitely look at bow tuning. And another thing is, is spine, you know, for the mass you have up front, um, you need to make sure that your arrow spine properly for it. And if it's not, you'll get the success of flexing coming off the bow and that flexing continues for quite a ways down range. And that'll make it so it's, it's very difficult with a broadhead out in front to, to shoot good groups as well. Gotcha. So, um, back to the FOC more, the the people that are going extreme FOC, what are some issues that can come with that? Yeah, well, um, the, one of the biggest issues I definitely see is people being underspined. They'll, they'll want to hit an FOC number. And I hear this from some customer builders that are friends of mine. They'll say, some of them come to them and say, I got to have 19 or 21% FOC. And you know, my friend will do the crunch numbers for them and they'll say, well, we can only get to like 18%. We can get to 20, but you'll be underspined with this setup. And they're like, oh, that's okay. That's what I want to, that's what I want you to build. And so to try and to try and hit some high FOC, they'll be underspined and then they'll never get good arrow flight because they'll have the success of flexing. Um, so that's, that's the number one problem I have with it. If you, if you want to go extreme FOC and you can build an arrow to support that spine wise and you're okay with your limited trajectory go for it that's great i just don't see it as as um it doesn't work for me i don't think for out west big game um high you know extreme foc is is the way to go i just think you it, it, you know it's also hard to get extreme foc without just having a really heavy arrow because you have to you're putting a lot of mass up front you have to have a spine to support that. So the arrow is going to weigh more. And, you know, you get up into these 600, 650, 700 plus grain arrows and the trajectory is, you know, there's a big arc to it. So you have to be very accurate with your, I guess you kind of got to range everything before you shoot it. If the animal moves a few yards, you probably better range again, or, or you could miss it or be off pretty far. Um, so th those are some of the issues I see with it, it personally. Gotcha. Interesting. Super interesting. Um, could, should we talk about the, the rotation just a, a little bit more? Do you think we cover that good? Yeah. Um, so the rotation, so there's two things it does for you. One thing, as I mentioned, it balances out these asymmetries. Um, if, a, if an arrow is not straight, if a broadhead is off to, pointing off to the side, if your inserts are, are not straight, something like that. The other thing it does is it creates some rotational momentum so you get your arrow rotating and then and then it holds it on that straight line better um you know kind of like you know rifling in a bullet um mm -hmm. making a bullet spin or you know a spiral in a football it just keeps it on that trajectory 
um, better. And with an arrow, let's say it's it's flying out there, and then you get a gust of wind that would, you know, want to push it off for a, a, or tip the arrow for a second. Well, if you got that rotational momentum, it takes a lot more force to push it off that course. Um, you know, it's like a, you spin up a gyroscope and you try and move it around. It takes a lot of force to try and move it. And so it'll, it'll keep that arrow on course better. Or if you, let's say you clip a blade of grass um, 10 yards before the animal with your vein, it just won't move it as far off course as it would if your arrow's not rotating. So anyways, that rotational momentum will want to keep you, you know, on track, on trajectory. So that's why I think it's important too. And I like having um, more than two degrees. Personally, I, I'm typically shooting two and a half to three degrees um, offset or helical. And I say either because I don't actually think there's a difference. I think there's a, you can buy a clamp that says straight or, or helical, but really if you take if you, if you take a line on a cylinder and offset it and wrap it on that cylinder, that's a helix. And so if you're offsetting a vein, but you're pushing it down under the shaft, it's, it's really helical too. So I don't really see this as a difference. I think it's more what kind of clamp system you use and is it a helical clamp will conform to have some radius and maybe wrap it on better if you're up in that two and a half to three degree. But um, anyway, I like that much um, spin versus like a zero to one degree. I don't think mm -hmm. you, I, I don't think you're going to fly as, as well um, because any, any little asymmetry there can make, can start driving it off to the side and you'll see more of an issue certainly with, with um, broadheads and you do field points and, and really a lot of arrow setups and a lot of the stuff you hear at pro shops are set up for you know, 20 yard target archery. And then it really doesn't matter um, if you're rotating or not, but these longer range with broadheads, I think it's pretty important. So with the uh, going on into veins a little bit more, do you like a, a right or a left offset? I've been shooting um, two degree right offset. Yeah, I've been, I've been using a right offset just kind of forever. Um, I don't think it matters that much. I know some people more recently are trying to match their direction to the way their string naturally wants to push their arrow out there. And man, I looked at that like at least 10 years ago when I first heard it, I shot some bear shafts and I saw I was getting like a quarter of a rotation at 10 feet. And I thought, well, this, is, this doesn't matter because with my veins, I'm getting a full rotation of the arrow in like less than a foot. So, um, it, yeah, and I'm sure people will debate me with this or refer me to some videos and I'm going to look at it some more with high speed camera, but it immediately, you know, the sum of the torques equals I alpha. So what that means is, you know, the strings putting some torque on it naturally, but your veins are going to put a lot more torque on it, you know, in whatever vein they're, whatever way they're done in the, in the net torque there. The veins are going to win out. Um, there may be a short distance where your arrow's not rotating or um, rotating the other direction, but personally, I haven't seen it be uh, something to get worked up about. But like I said, I will look at it more because I there's enough guys shooting left fletch because their bow shoots left that are pushing me to do a left single bevel broadhead um, that I need to I need to research it a bit more myself and 
get some data for those people. But uh, anyway, right now I do a right fletch and our single bevels right and right's most common out there. Um, but I don't think it really matters much for flight. I think, you know, with, with the recurve or long bow, some people want it left to, to get better clearance. I mean, some people have reasons for doing it, but um, it, I don't really see a, dip, uh, a need to do anything particular for broadheads. I just think if you're shooting a single bevel, get it, use a right hand if you're gonna use a right single bevel head um, and just have enough rotation, whether you do it right or left. Gotcha. Interesting. That's really interesting. Now, what about, I think a big, um, a big thing most recently is like three fletch, four fletch or six. Yeah. Um, man, six. <laughs> I, th I think that's kind of ridiculous. Myself. <laughs> um, so the veins, there's really kind of two purposes for the vein. Well, the, I guess the, the main purpose for the vein is to create this stability. Um, and to me, you want a vein kind of, I mean, ideally it would have minimal weight, minimal drag, but good stability. And so drag is that if the arrow is going in a straight line downrange, it's on target, it's it's on track. You, you don't want to, to have any more drag than you need to, because you want to maintain as much velocity as you can for better trajectory, better penetration. So you really want veins to have minimal drag. If you have four veins versus three, now you've got, you know, a third more drag. Um, if you have six veins, now you just doubled your drag over three veins. So, and you won't get as much benefit to stability because stability, if you kind of think about that, that's, if you think about like a crosswind blowing across the veins, um, you know, how much pressure would it create to push it back on track? And it's not exactly surface area because it's, it can vary with blade, with vein geometry and how that air flows over it. And really, it's really the pressure difference created from the airflow over it at, at some angle that's not straight down the shaft, but at an angle. Um, <clears throat> and how much restoring force does it have? And what I found, you know, I, I don't know, I may have confused you with all the talk here, but anyways, what, what I want to have is good stability with minimal drag. And I found like three high profile veins, like the size of a blazer or a max hunter do a good job with that. They're, they create a lot of stability. They don't have excessive drag. Um, I think, you know, like a max, um, stealth is a very popular hunting vein cause it's a little quieter, mm -hmm. a little lower profile. Um, a four, you know, four max stealth is super popular out there. And I've got arrow set up with that. And I agree. It's, uh, the max stealth is a little quieter. Um, I don't think it matters so much to me personally, because I don't think the animal hears that, that increased noise from veins until the arrow is pretty close based on my past sound testing. But, um, and they do work well in that four vein max stealth, but my arrows hitting like two inches lower at hundred yards. I mean, not, sorry, not two inches, two feet lower at hundred yards. Oh. So there's considerably more drag. Um, do they work? Yes, they work. They do work well. They stabilize. It's a good vein. It's, um, it's just not that, that efficient. I'm trying to get as minimal kind of minimized drag and get good steering. And so that's why I go with what I go with. Um, you know, there may be a balance there where you have a four vein. that's a little bit smaller, um, where you're getting, 
less lesser drag now and enough stability. Um, but I still feel like when you go to four vein or more, you're getting you're getting more drag without adding as without adding as much stability. And so I think it's a, they're a little less efficient. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. What about vein length? What what a uh, role does that have? <clears throat> yeah. So vein length, a longer vein will, will help with stability because you've got a more area there. Um, what I see as a higher profile vein is more effective. And I think part of it is the like the velocity um, difference. You know, the velocity, the air, the the wind coming down the shaft. You know the the velocity, the relative velocity at the shaft is zero. Um, you know, that's like if when air flows over something, a fixed object, the air, the velocity of the airflow at the object is actually zero. And then, you know, say a, an inch away from the object or probably a half inch away from the arrow is, um, is at max speed, you know, whatever arrows, whatever speed the arrow is going, say 300 feet per second. And you've got this, kind of velocity profile coming up from the shaft. So a quarter inch up from the shaft, it's the velocity is probably still pretty low. It's not at 300 feet per second um, or 280 or 270, whatever your arrow velocity is. It's some fraction of that um, because you get this, you know, you get this, um, you know, kind of laminar flow over the arrow and it's, it's it, anyways, it's slower near the arrow and it increases in speed as you go further away. And so um, short, longer veins, I just don't think they're as effective because the, the air velocity is lower in that first quarter inch or so. So I don't think you get a lot of effect. If you had a quarter inch high vein that was really long, I don't think you get much, much stability from that as you do if you have one that's closer to that. You know, the ones I've been pointing out are like 0.58 or 0.6 inches high. I kind of like a vein to be in that 0.5 inch height to um, to be more effective, I think, for stability because of that velocity kind of gradient that's coming up from the shaft to where you actually hit max velocity. Interesting, super interesting. Is there anything else on on the veins? Well, I think that's about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Do you want to uh, to dive into force a little bit more? Just I'm just looking through your flip chart, or should we talk about durability? Yeah, you know, it's, I would just say on force, kind of reiterate that <clears throat> keeping that force low can just greatly improve penetration. And you know, if you can if you can get good arrow, have good arrow flight <clears throat> by having a stable a stable arrow. Um, and then your, your next, we'll get into durability a bit here too, but really your next best bang for the buck after having good arrow flight, I think is having a broadhead as low force to penetrate to really maximize your penetration. And I mentioned some of the numbers on just hide, hide and meat, but if you add, I also did that testing with, with um, hide meat and then the shoulder blade and there we saw like the ironwood broadhead took 33 pounds to completely penetrate through the hide meat shoulder blade and um three blade chisel point was in that 150 pound range and three blade cut on contact was i think it was 318. um so i, I don't think a lot of people realize that and i found this very early on in my testing i was always a three blade guy and still i started 
so I started measuring the force to push down through things and and like a three blade cut on contact that would be like a solid one piece solid three blade design those um those edge angles are typically 60 degrees or 30 per side so they're not that um they're not as sharp or you know acute as you as you'd see in uh, most blades when when it's that shape and if you're going down through a shoulder blade, I think what's happening is you're trying to make these three splits outward, regularly outward, and there's kind of a wedging effect there, I think. Hmm. Um, and it greatly increases the force to penetrate down through. And, you know, almost, it was almost 10 times higher than the iron wheel broadhead. And we get into a, a mechanical, and there I hit 400 pounds, and it never penetrated the shoulder blade. It was pushing it smashed everything down to the steel table where I was going to damage the load cell. I didn't shut it down. Um, so that's over what, over 10 times what it, and it was, you know, I'd say over probably 15 times the force or something like that to get through mm -hmm. the shoulder blade. Um, so yeah, again, I don't, I don't like mechanicals for any animals, but certainly not bigger, you know, elk, bigger mule deer, caribou, things where the bones are, have some significant size to it. You know, the big bull I shot a few years ago, those ribs were almost three quarters of an inch thick. Um, they're thicker than scapulas um, in, in in the thinnest part of the scapula anyway. So it's mm -hmm. it's anyway, something to consider there in the force. Um, yeah. And then, you know, durability is really that, OK, you've got you've kind of maximized your momentum or energy down at the target. Your arrows flying straight. Now, as you start to penetrate um, you really need your components in your broadheads and your blade not to bend or break. I mean, you just suck up so much energy there. And what, what I, um, I don't like aluminum at all for impact. I think, you know, aluminum is cheap and lightweight and it's used a lot in archery and it's fine in targets, but I wouldn't use it at all for for hunting where you have a chance of hitting heavy bone. Um, it just bends too easy. It sucks up a ton of energy. Um, I think it's still the most common feral material out there and for sure the most common component material out there. Um, but say a half out, uh, aluminum half out is, you know, this bends so easy. I have people tell me all the time that they're bending. I'm just shooting them in targets over, you know, over a week or so. And you really want, so, you know, we make our materials um, that we use for our ferrules and our hit inserts, impact collars. It's um, all hardened steel or grade five titanium. Mm -hmm. And I just found with those materials, you can count on that it's not going to bend or break, you know, going through even the heaviest bone. Um, and so I would, you know, if, if you don't, um, you don't have to choose iron broadheads. There's other ones out there that at least use steel ferrules, but I try and choose hardened steel because all steels aren't really equal either. There's very soft steel that'll bend. It's not that much stronger than aluminum. Um, and then there's hardened steel, which is, can be multiple times stronger. Um, anyways, I'd suggest that for, for the ferrule material on blade steel. Um, typically blades out there are 420 stainless. And that's kind of a, it, it's, well, they're very low cost. That's the main reason I use them, but there's kind of a compromise there um, in that it, it does okay on sharpness, okay on toughness, but it's really not great on either one. You can get better 
sharpness, edge retention with the higher hardness. You know, a, a 420 stainless is um, is around 50 Rockwell C. Um, when they put it in a a mechanical, when they have these two inch long blades, they're used typically using like 46 to 48 Rockwell C. And that's, you can't really get a sharp edge and it's dull by the time it goes through the hide. So you're just tearing more tissue than cutting. Um, whereas our A2 tool steel is 60 Rockwell C. So you get a great, great sharpness. Um, so I like the higher hardness to get the sharpness you need and retain that edge. But at the same time, you, you wanna pick a steel that has high toughness so that's not gonna break if you say hit that leg bone. And that's the problem with some of the, you know, premium stainless steels. Stainless steel just has a very low toughness. Um, so if, you, if you're down at 50 Rockwell C or lower, it has, it has good toughness. Um, but if you're up to, you know, 56, 58, something where you'd get good edge retention, mm -hmm. become very brittle. So I found that with some of the other, you know, so-called premium blade steels out there in broadheads that are stainless. Um, I'll test those on my Instron tester and I can snap those with 70 pounds of force. Um, I can, so I can literally snap those by hand. And these are relatively thick blades um, compared to our S series blade where we can, I can push on that with a thousand pounds and have no damage at all, no bending or breaking. Um, so anyway, choosing components that can, especially when you have a high energy setup um, and you've got a heavier arrow, there's a tremendous amount of force now pushing that broadhead through that animal. And if you hit a, a leg bone, the, the shoulder blade edge or down, you know, something causes side impact. Mm -hmm. um, having components that can hold up to that because uh, if you bend that ferrule over or bend your components over, you're done right there. You know, you, you've taken up all the energy and you've stopped penetration and, and it's a sad day for sure. Yeah. Well, I've, I've told this story before. I think the first time I was around um, an iron will was we were in Wyoming a couple of years ago and a buddy of mine shot an elk um, broadside 50 yards, went through, it was a complete pass through, went through two ribs, broke two ribs and I'm used to being around broadheads that like bend and break usually, you know, they're like a one timer. And we, I found that arrow and picked it up and was feeling the broadhead. And I'm like, this thing going through an elk is sharper than the ones that you buy in a box store right out of the package. And that's, that's huge. I mean, to me anyways, like that's worth the, the initial cost to be able to use them over and over and over again. Yeah, I think we had a lot of um, a lot of concern on the cost initially and pushback on the cost, but we we really don't get that at all from people that have, have used them. They realize like um, if you shoot through an animal, even bones, and the broadhead is not bent, it still spins true and it's still sharp. Typically, can still shave hair after going through an animal. Mm -hmm. um, they just realize that how much more you can get from a broadhead, um, and nobody's really experienced that, um, or very rarely um, with, with other heads out there. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, and it was really through years of developing the materials and getting to the point where, okay, I know this will go through an animal and not really get damaged at all that decided to do the lifetime warranty to, to kind of assure people if they put in that much money up front, they could keep shooting them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bill, I think we basically went through your seminar. Was there anything else that you wanted to add in? 
No, not really. You know, just, you know, just to summarize, um, Aeroflight, I think, is number one. Don't do something to compromise that. Um, and, you know, get some help there to get your bow tuned. Choose enough vein for the broadhead up front. Get some rotation. Don't be under spine. You know, Aeroflight's number one. Um, Durability is way up there, though. Make sure the components are going to be able to take that hit. Um, you know, choose mass over speed. And go as heavy as you can for the trajectory that you're happy with. And... You know, if you're only going to shoot 30 yards, you, go, you know, you can't hardly overdo it there. But um, if you want to shoot that longer range, I think that 450 to 550 is, you know, good for out west, big game hunting. That's kind of what I what I've used for years and I have a lot of friends set up that way and it seem to work pretty well. Um, yeah, choose something that has low force to penetrate to kind of maximize that penetration to the animal. And um, yeah, and weight up front was you look at the total arrow weight. You know, try and get as much up front as you can, um, but still keeping properly spined and, you know, in that total mass range you want for your trajectory. But mm -hmm. that weight up front will help you with stability. Um, and also, I should mention that, you know, at penetration, if you have a bunch of weight in back and your arrow's not going straight, perfectly straight, um, that can hurt penetration because it can kind of bend the arrow off to one side or another rather than just pushing it straight through. So mm -hmm. that's what having more weight up front um, can help you as well. Interesting. So where can people find this seminar? I think uh, you said Dan Staten uh, recorded it. Yeah, he did. He's putting it up on the, the Elk Collective. Um, I think I think that's a subscription service. Um, I'm not sure the details on that. You can check it out though on their website. And but um, yeah, as, as much interest there was and how many questions I got, I just realized this is good information. So I might try and, we might try and put some of this up on our, our YouTube channel as well here in the future. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I was, I was kind of thinking if anybody has questions um, after we've run through all this, if you want to shoot them over to me, maybe we can have you on for like a, a follow-up Q&A later on. Yeah, sure. That would be great. Cool. And yeah, feel free to reach out. Um, our website is ironwelloutfitters.com. There's a contact us form where you can ask ask questions there. Um, you know, or, or you can call our main number, leave a message. We're uh, often on the phone with somebody else. And so, yeah, leave a message and we'll call you back too. Awesome. Awesome, Bill. Well, I thank you for hopping on. Hey, bet. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. And good, good hunting this year. Yeah, you too.